You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with the Financial Times's Ravi Matu, talking to guests ahead of the Names Not Numbers Symposium 2013, brought to you by Editorial Intelligence and the Financial Times and Partners. For further information, have a look at namesnotnumbers.com. Hello, I'm Ravi Matu of the Financial Times, and I'm joined here with three of the most prominent thinkers, doers, and observers of society today. Professor A.C. Grayling is Master of the New College of the Humanities and one of the country's foremost philosophers. Alice Sherwood works at the King's Policy Institute, a nonpartisan think tank based at King's College London. And Leo Johnson is an entrepreneur, expert on sustainability, and author, most recently, of The Next Wave of Growth. A.C., if I could start with you, can you put into context a bit this idea of individuality, um, the role of individuals within the broader context of society? You know, through most of history, there were very, very few individuals. Individuality was frowned on, rather. Everybody was meant to conform. Everybody was meant to have the same beliefs and to step up to the same mark, behave in the same way. And anybody who stood out was in some danger of uh, getting burned at the stake or having their heads chopped off. This certainly happened with, um, you know, formidable wise women, uh, for example, or people who were heretics or people who thought differently from the mass. And actually, it's uh, an Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment phenomenon that the individual has been valorized, that it's become important to be individual. But one aspect of the Romantic movement in the 19th century is the idea of the heroic individual standing out, achieving in art or, or in thought. And in our own time now, individuality is taken for granted. We try to encourage, in a way, people to be uh, owners and to take responsibility for their lives and their choices. Uh, Although, of course, with a much more populated world, um, massively, uh, perhaps overpopulated in a way, there is a risk that uh, the mass becomes engulfing. Although... The bright side might be that the more homogenous the mass, the more salient individuals stand out. So, Alice, let's fast forward to the 21st century in the kind of uh, the digital age, the globalized age. Everyone's connected in ways we never thought imaginable. What does that mean for the current context in which we operate? What it means is, in a sense, it's a huge opportunity, but it's also a huge stress. So, as Professor Grayling was outlining... For most of history, you weren't supposed to be an individual. For most of history, the structure around you and your place in the structure was fixed. And there are fantastic old etchings of what was called the Great Chain of Being, uh, which started with dirt, went through animals, humans, kings, angels at the top, and then God. And in between that were all the connections which were set in stone, or set fixed, the moment you were born. If you look at the front page of Facebook now... Uh, you will see that everyone can be connected across the world to anybody. So possibility is endless, possibility is open, and I think with that comes a great deal of almost existential fear, which is that with this fantastic digital age, with all these riches, in a sense you become responsible for creating yourself. Um, So there's possibility, but there's uh, a fear You can connect to everyone, but to what end? So one of the things we have to start thinking about now that we have so many ways of connecting people is to people to people, people to institutions, people to people they do know and people to people they don't know, is why are we doing it? To what end and to what purpose? 
Uh, and I think we're in, if you like, the second wave of, of, of connectivity now. So I don't know what the others think. Well, what is? let me just tap into that okay. before I come to Leo. In terms of to what end? I mean, what do you think? What, what do you think are the big... The, the big questions. The big questions the big around qu- that. Okay. What should we be connecting okay. to? What are we connected to? Is that leading us down the wrong path? Yeah. Of being a greater whole than we are now. Um, well, there's many things. As a, a company, you'll obviously want to be connected to your consumers in useful and authentic ways. Um, as an individual, uh, you'll want to have connections that are meaningful, and that is for the individual to define. And in a professional context, I think you'll start to want to sift through, if you like, this immense amount of virtual uh, business cards you you have uh, and pick the ones that are genuinely useful um, to you. So I think those connections um, are quite important politically. And if we're going to get into politics, uh, then there's a a difference in what social media can do, which goes from informing, which Occupy, hashtag Occupy Wall Street did, um, but to not as greater effect, obviously, as we saw elsewhere, but also mobilising, as we saw in the Arab Spring. So there's, there's almost a pyramid, if you like. So it's it depends what you want to do with it, uh, but some thought probably has to come come first. Leo, let's come to you. Uh, you're obviously traveling the world, finding actors who maybe couldn't connect to the world in places that weren't necessarily able to access markets or have uh, abilities to access funders or what have you. With the kind of the the entrepreneurs that you're seeing doing things differently at sustainable levels, you mentioned that you you've just been to Mozambique, for instance. How does that fit into what Alice has mentioned, indeed, what AC, if, if at all, in terms of that connectivity and where that's changing the way things are going? Sure. You know, I just came back um, yesterday morning from Kelimani in Mozambique. But I love what Alice is saying about real connection as opposed to virtual connection. I think we're at a point of inflection in terms of where technology can take us. Um, and... The, what's the difference between the virtual and the, and the real? For me, you can sum it up. There's this sweet old story from the Austrian economist uh, Schumacher. When Schumacher was a farm labourer, okay, he was working in, in Britain in, in the war. And he, Schumacher, as an economist, is likely to be pretty useless on a farm, it's got to be said. So the only thing he's allowed to do is count the cows. And his job every morning is to go and count the cows. And every morning he goes and sees that there are 32 cows. And he reports back to the farm owner, there's 32. One morning he goes to the cows. And there's an old man leaning on the gate. And the old man says to him, the cows, they're never going to flourish with you counting them like that. And he comes back a week later. And sure enough, one of them is dead. And Schumacher then realises that what he was doing was treating these cows as factors of production. He was not feeling their coat. He was not looking at their tongue. He was not looking at the clarity of their eyes. He wasn't connecting with them as individuals. And this is the society that we are part of. We are all what Alistair McIntyre calls dependent beings. We all need people to feel our coats, to put their hands on us, to check our tongues. We need that as individuals. We need that real social interaction to thrive. And the question is, can cities in particular 
be reconfigured away from the disconnection that mass-produced, automobile-driven consumer capitalism has created us, has created that way of life? Can cities be reconfigured to something maybe a little bit more like the polis, where we do know each other, we live with each other, we feel each other, we know each other's needs, and we use technology to help produce the stuff that, of course, gives meaning to us as we produce it, but actually helps people's lives as well. AC, let me come to you on that, because I'm, I'm going to be a bit disruptive here. I mean, uh, people won't recognise it because we're on radio or on a podcast, but of course we're all uh, a little... We're not of the youthful generation, the digital natives, Stop I suppose. Not so, no, 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 no. <laughs> but AC... Alice. Uh, Alice accepted, of course. But AC, you've been a teacher for a long time of students at undergraduate level, uh, graduate level, postdoc, of course, and now as the master of the new college, you're seeing a whole new different set of people, individuals coming to you. Is this a discussion which sounds to your students like uh, the grumpy old folks talking about a bygone era? Or does that nature of kind of connecting the virtual with the real, something that resonates with them? Do you know, I learned something very surprising the other day when we were complaining to our students that they weren't paying attention to the email messages we were sending them. And they said, not quite, what's email? But they said, we don't read email. They do other things. Now, email is already you know, part of technological so history. It's absolutely extraordinary how fast things change and the, the, you, the use that people make of these uh, technologies. Really, really extraordinary. And yet there is something perennial in the human need and the human condition. I find, for example, that in the um, kinds of subjects that we teach at uh, my college, the humanities, that there is an extremely important element that would be lost if it were done just electronically. That one-to-one, that personal contact, that inflection of the voice, that raising of the eyebrow, it's really like looking at the cow's tongue, isn't it? When you you pick up some things, and the the phrase these days is that that there's some stuff that can only be caught, it can't be taught. You've got to be there in the same room as people. And this is going to make a big difference to how education, but perhaps to everything, works in future if we place too much reliance on technology. But I was interested in, in, by what they said there. I mean, yes, I agree. You know, reconnection on the community basis is a tremendously important thing. And we do have to think very hard about these vast mega cities with their freeways and millions of cars running through and everybody separated from everybody else by sheets of metal. But at the same time, one thing which has been very empowering for human beings in the last couple of centuries is the growth of individual space, if you like, the fact that there is a margin of privacy around people, that you don't live in a village where everybody's curtains are twitching and you're being watched by everybody all the time and that you have no freedom of movement. And this is terribly important because one one thing that other kinds of liberations have made possible, moral liberation, for example, is that we're able to connect with people in many more ways than we used to in the past. When Alice was talking there about how fixed in concrete human relations were and your place in society was, it was so closed down how you could how you could connect with others. There was so much convention that governed what people could do and how they could respond uh, to the people around them. And I think a much more fluid, more flexible, more open, more plastic social environment is a very good thing. And that's something which has been potentiated by electronic media. What we have to watch, I think, and this is my sort of final point on this is that we don't lose what's good in the old-fashioned way of going for a walk with somebody and having a face-to-face talk, on the one hand, while being able to really make good, positive use of the fact that we can be connected with everybody everywhere.
But is that, I mean, uh, Leo, let me come to you again on this real versus virtual, uh, because I wonder if that's a false dichotomy in the sense that, you know, I use Twitter a lot. It allows me to kind of uh, develop relationships with people that I wouldn't otherwise, which doesn't preclude me from on occasion going and meeting them in person. So isn't it a tool to enable both the real and virtual and it's like any other kind of means of communicating and connecting? It's just another tool to do it and it depends how you, you do it. Are we overplaying this idea that people sit in rooms the whole time and don't actually talk to real people and go for the walk and the face-to-face with each other? There's a good line from Kentaro Toyama, who says that technology is not the answer. Technology is the amplifier of intent. And it just depends what is the intent. Is the intent to be with each other and to help create communities that thrive? Or is the intent to treat people as factors of production, including digital factors of production, where our data is sucked up and used, as we saw today with, with, with the latest spyware from Raytheon, where our data is used as the latest source of, of, of profits? In the end, the issue is, I think, about the type of capitalism that we want. We have come from an age of fossil fuel-driven mass capitalism, which Henry Ford initiated and which raised the lives of billions of people and was generally fantastic, but it created a certain number of spin-offs. It disconnected us from nature. It disconnected us from the people around us. It disconnected us from other societies who we treated as factors of production. It disconnected us economically from future generations whose issues we discounted with discount rates. It disconnected us from our own motivations beyond the homo economicus motivations of money. So the question is, what will replace that mass production model? And this is where technology with the right intent could start to become interesting. So Kelimani and just as interesting Barcelona, what they're looking at is creating these connected, and not just connected, but productive cities. So in Barcelona, for example, you've got this super cool guy who's the deputy mayor, Anthony Vives, and his vision is to create what he calls a fab city. And it's about using microproduction, nanotechnologies, 3D printing, and the smart microgrid, where you basically get houses and buildings connected together, co-producing renewable power, which then means they're energy independent. And they're also using this technology to be bringing back business that was outshored to China to become garage manufacturers. And he's creating these clusters where these dozen fab labs dotted across Barcelona are getting people, including the unemployed, including pensioners, to recover their productive skills, to understand what the needs of the local neighbourhood are, which may be around mobility for those who've got mobility problems. It may be around energy. You've got groups that are producing their own vehicles. These fab labs are bringing back manufacturing, creating a city that is actually generating stuff. And what's interesting is if you go back to some of the distinctions that are in Plato around different types of desire, if you have a passive desire, which is the desire for stuff, stuff that you need, the basics for your life, and if you have active desire, the desire to produce stuff, to make stuff, to to be homo faber, it's connecting these two together. Instead of a mass model, where none of us are really producing stuff, it's the factories that are producing stuff, and we're all parasites. 
and our desire to produce is not being satisfied. And at the same time, there's billions of people whose basic needs, whose, whose passive desire is not met as well, actually. It's matching the two together. And it's our active desire that is helping us satisfy the passive desire of the people who we know and who we're connected to. That, for me, is the exciting potential. It's a post-mass use of technology. Alice? I think it sounds very exciting. I like the I love the idea of Barcelona fab labs. Um, I should check them out, shouldn't I? Um, post-mass society. I'm not sure, or I'm not sure yet. Um, I think we'll... I, I hope we get to a post-mass society. I think the, the stepping stone there is the mixed economy. Um, so some of what Leo's For talking sure. about, sure. uh, some remnants of, of Henry Ford. Um, it depends on the country and it depends on the technology. So um, we are all, we are all, many of us are very linked into uh, Twitter and Facebook. Uh, if you go to the biggest democracy in the world, I think it's one to two percent are on Twitter and Facebook. Uh, in India, um, everyone has radio. 70% have mobiles. So actually, the medium there is voice. Uh, uh, the medium here, obviously, and going for a walk is air. Um, it doesn't really matter, but we've just had a shake-up of technology and we will need to find the right medium for things we've done a certain way before. So I think Professor Grayling is absolutely right. There are some things that you are very difficult to do electronically and I think parts of education and education in the humanities, uh, that, that's very true. I think you might just about be able to do electro electronic, electronically excuse me, but you can't do seminar um, which I suppose is the equivalent of cow stroking um, your students um, but of course actually it's better than cow stroking because your students can stroke back uh, so Will we? Will technology force us down a certain direction? No, but we will have to think hard and mix and match appropriately. And on the mass thing, I wanted to pick you up on that, or what Leo said about this idea that we're in a post-mass society. Part of the, I guess, difficulty, the question I have about that is actually everything that seems massively successful online these days is all about driving the power of the crowd, the power of the open source, the power of the mass, actually, rather than the individual. So whether it's Wikipedia or whether it's Facebook. But, of course, with some of these tools or devices, such as Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn, one of the curious things about the suggestions you get is there are always people like you. So with Twitter, you're essentially introduced to other people who think the same things. With LinkedIn, your links are not with people in a completely different approaches or worlds. So again, how does that massness tie to the individuality, I suppose, when the technology seems to be setting us to the power of the crowd? And two, how does that impinge on that nature of curiosity? We talk about the need for curiosity as a fundamental human essential part of our being, and that's in a way what makes us richer people. I mean, Alice, could you come to that kind of you mentioned Facebook and, and these various devices in the kind of post-mass society. Are we actually heading to post-mass society? And, and where, where is the role of curiosity of the individual in that? Well, I think, I think your point about the, the trope about the wisdom of crowds is, 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 the, is the right one, because the, the wisdom of crowds is, is only wisdom if the crowds are different. In other words, a, a hundred identical views is one view. 
Uh, so the wisdom of crowds carries with it a big sort of warning sign saying these crowds have to be diverse. And there are two ways of being diverse. You can actually buy, be diverse by assembling different people or you can be diversity minded, if you like, which is curious. So that you're, you're, you come with a uh, mental, mentally prepared uh, to think differently, ask questions, you're asking to be moved out of your your comfort zone. So I, I think the role of curiosity is essential if our new technology is to do anything more than just replicate the mass and um, and the, the lack of individualism. Leo, do you think the new tools are encouraging us to be more curious or impeding us from becoming more curious? And indeed, let's, let's be honest here about the people who run the world. I mean, uh, are they less able to use those tools to kind of expand their universes or, or, or control them. They're mostly being used to make us buy more, aren't they? I think there is a real danger that we move away from what you could call the petropolis that we've had and that you can see in sort of post-Katrina New Orleans and even, you know, post-Sandy New York, the fragile, um, non-resilient, fossil fuel-driven mass city that we move away from Petropolis towards something that you call Cyberbia, which is the smart city, in quotes, the blueprinted, top-down, shimmering ecopolis where everything is measured and it's eco-efficient and it's all stuff where we just glide through it as these frictionless orbs of consumption. But not everyone wants to live in Singapore. Uh, but you're seeing that stuff in Kenya, okay? Kenya's creating Konza Technopolis, 60 miles from Nairobi. And there's a real question, you know, is Konza Technopolis going to be the place where we're all living, if we've got any capital at all? Or are we going to be moving towards another thing that Kenya's got, which is the IHUB, which is this distributed city where you've got the Ngong Road and we've got the tech people who are actually building the applications like M-Pesa for mobile money transfers and copper for solar lights with SIM card chips built in them so that the poor can use them and then do insurance transfers. Over. Are we going to use technology to enable us to be more curious about each other, to live with each other so that we can understand each other's needs and then deliver on these needs? Or are we just going to use technology to remove ourselves into the role of not citizens but consumers? AC, final word to you. Uh, are you optimistic? Do you think these are tools that are going to lead us in the right direction? Are we in just a state of flux and we actually don't know the answer to that because of the pace I'm of change? I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I'm curious <laughs> because we, we live in an age where our contradictions and paradoxes are vividly present to us all the time. When we think about the rate of change over the last couple of decades technologically and all these different ways in which we can communicate with one another and get information out there and, you know, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that the internet itself, this vast resource of data and exploding in, in increasing volume of data available to us all the time. And of course, we know that data is knowledge until the data is organised and put into patterns. And we know that knowledge is not the final step. The final step is understanding, making sense of it, being able to interpret and analyse it and know which bits of it are worthwhile and what bits of it to put to use. And we also know that 90% of what's on the internet is a load of rubbish. I mean, it's the biggest laboratory war in history and everybody scribbled their graffiti on it. And it becomes acutely important that we should be able to discriminate 
good sources of information, good information sites, uh, and know how to evaluate it and, and put it to work properly. That demands of us a whole set of new skills. We've got to be able to navigate this universe that we live in now. And I'm not sure that we've had time to catch our breaths and know how to do it. It's all changing so fast. So we know the good and the bad, the, the potential and the downside of it is that they, they coexist at the moment. And it's a bit like the early universe. You know, if you lived in the early universe, you wouldn't know whether it was going to be matter or antimatter that won the day. Somehow or other, and it's a mystery still, how it is that matter managed to outweigh the antimatter and give us the universe that we've got. Well, what's going to happen with all this stuff? Uh, you know, is it going to be good? Is it going to be bad? Well, I but go back or, or to the 19th century and I think about the brilliant postal service that we had in England in the 19th century. People wrote six, ten, twelve letters a day to one another and they were delivered on the instant. So there was a kind of email, if you like, uh, you know, but, that people were able to communicate, but relatively few, the people who were literate, the people who had the money or the, the franking for the letters. Now, everybody's got the frank for the letters. Everybody can get onto email or Twitter and communicate with other people. The huge downside of this is the an anonymous scurrility that goes on in all these media and the, and the, the way that, that people can be torn to shreds, uh, you know, their privacy invaded. Um, but on the other hand, the fact that it's more talk, there's more communication, there's more connection between people it has to be a good thing. In the end it's the fact that we don't listen to one another we don't hear what the other people are saying we don't know how things are for other people we're oblivious to alternative perspectives to our own. Those are the things that are actually more dangerous in the long term and cause more divisions so it might be that this great storm of, of communication which has been unleashed on the world now might produce something which in the end is I hope anyway uh, productive and good. But um, whether it will be like that or not, I don't know. I'm just very curious to see. I'm hoping that they get on with this stem cell research in medicine so I can live long enough to see it. <laughs> so do we. I think one uh, uniting factor of all of this is that despite the technological revolution, the human uh, has pride of place within that. Thank you very much to AC Grading, Leo Johnson and Alice Sherwood. That was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening.